Well, hi, Emmanuel Faith. I'm so excited to be starting a new teaching series with you today that we're calling Raise Your Voice. See, over the last few months, I've noticed this phenomenon popping up in a number of different places. Uh, this reality that as human beings, we want our voice to be heard. I've seen it when people are frustrated because they'll share a video on Facebook and it'll disappear. We don't like censorship. I've also seen it in the streets in Portland. Over the last 70 days, there have been protests over uh, racial injustices and people raising their voice. And I have a feeling that we might also see it in our upcoming political season, that voices will be raised, opinions will be shared, and it just seems to me like part of the human experience is the desire to have our voice heard. In fact, a few years ago, in 2013, the um, Federal Communications Commission passed what they call the CALM Act, and they required commercials to be at the volume level of the shows that we're watching. You remember when commercials used to come on and they would be so loud, they would just like blow you back on the couch? Well, they're not allowed to do that anymore technically. They're, they're monitoring the volume. What's really interesting to me though, is we, we understand the value of using our voice. And we also understand that I think in many ways we're in a battle for volume, that we see that raising in our culture in a lot of different ways in our season. As I thought about that though, you know what, here's, and I'd invite you to write this down because this is sort of the big idea for the next few weeks that we're gonna circle around as a community of faith. That as Jesus followers, we are called to be people who speak vertically in a volume-obsessed world. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. That in a culture where people are ratcheting up the volume of their voice, as Jesus followers, we are to ratchet up the trajectory of our voice. Meaning that before we proclaim anything to the world, we need to be people of, of prayer. We need to be people who talk to our Father, who hear the heartbeat of God and who then speak into the world out of an overflow of that. There's this man, Walter Wink, a number of years ago, he wrote that history belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. History belongs to the intercessors, to those who, who pray. Do, do you believe that? What's really interesting is that almost every religion prays. I mean, think about this. We have Muslims who pray, Hindus who pray, Buddhists who pray, uh, Jehovah's Witness who pray, uh, Wiccans pray, uh, followers of Jesus pray. So just to be clear, not all of these religions pray in the same way and they don't pray to the same God, but they all pray. In a lot of ways, this seems to have been the case since the dawn of creation. I mean, you have people praying for victory in battle. You have people praying for crops to grow. You have people praying for fertility. Uh, you have people praying for all sorts of things. And it appears that humanity's recognition that they aren't in control has been responded to by prayer for generations and generations. According to a recent Gallup poll, 9 out of 10 people pray regularly, 
three out of four people pray on a daily basis. And yet, and yet, prayer is still a mystery, isn't it? I mean, somebody once asked Albert Einstein what they should, if there was any original work to do their dissertation on. And Einstein's response was, find out about prayer. Someone must find out about prayer. That's, isn't that fascinating? Well, over the next few weeks, I'm not going to give you a dissertation, but I am going to invite you into an exploration of what it means to be people of prayer as followers of Jesus, what that uniquely means and what God might be inviting us into in this season. See, as followers of Jesus, we have an illustrious history of being people of prayer. In fact, did you know that there's a group of Christians called the Moravians who had 24-7 around-the-clock prayer that lasted for over a hundred years? Now, that Moravian movement gave birth to, um, in many ways, the modern missions movement. They were praying, then they sent out missionaries in response to, to God's leading and God's prompting. And in many ways, what we saw through the Moravians is that prayer ignited revival and that it birthed renewal. And so I just want to put my cards on the table. I'm, I'm praying that God would stir something fresh in us. I'm praying that there would be a recognition and a desire to become a people of prayer and that becoming people of prayer would in turn shape and reshape the world that we live in. Would you pray with me that God would do something great in our, through our exploration of prayer over the next few weeks? As we dive in today, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 33. That's where we're going to start our journey. So as you're turning to Exodus chapter 33, let me give you a little bit of the context. We're going to be studying a prayer by a man named Moses today. Moses was one of Israel's greatest leaders. He had led the nation out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He'd seen God do amazing things. And he was up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 32, up on the mountain, receiving from God the Ten Commandments. Well, the people, the nation of Israel is right below him and they're worshiping and creating a golden calf. And so it's in Exodus chapter 33 that God starts to dialogue with Moses about what he's going to do in response to the Israelites' sin. Uh, um, Moses would say himself that this was a, quote, great sin. They violated the commandments of the Lord. And so what God told Moses was, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to restart with you. And Moses says back to God, don't do that. What will all the other nations think of Israel if you, their God, wipe them out? And then he calls on God, go with us. Keep going with us. We need your presence to go with us. See, Moses wants the assurance that God will continue to bless Israel through his presence. And that's where we pick up Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. Listen to the way this reads. It says this, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
We'll talk about this in just a moment, but it's an echo back to verse two, where God told Moses, I'm not going with you, but I'll send an angel, okay? Yet you have said, I know you by name, you have also found favor in my sight. So this is Moses speaking now. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider to this nation, your people. And he said, this is God, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And he, Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So don't you love this, this interchange? God says, all right, Moses, I'm going to go with you. Moses is like, well, good, because if you didn't go with us, I wouldn't go. Four, verse 16, how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us? Notice this emphasis on presence so that we are distinct, your people from every other people on the face of the earth. I mean, I love Moses' boldness. I'm not going if you're not going. And it's the only thing. God, your presence is the only thing that sets us apart. See, Moses had this conviction. Um, God, if you are not present, we are not powerful. Do you have the same conviction? See, here's Moses. He continues in his prayer, and here's what he says. The Mo- then Moses said to the Lord, This very thing you've spoken I will do. For you have, sorry, this is the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you've spoken, I will do for you, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, and this is where we're going to drill in today. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. What a, a bold prayer. I mean, this word glory in our English Bible is translated from the Hebrew word kabod, kabod. In fact, Will you say that with me? Wherever you're at, if you're in a coffee shop, just say it loud, say it proud, wave to the person next to you, kabod. Yeah, it's a word that is hard to find an English equivalent to because it's such a, a big word. It means abundance. It means weight. It could mean beauty. It could mean majesty. It could mean splendor. And see, when Moses is asking God to show him his glory, he's asking God for an abundance or an overflow of God himself in Moses's life. Now, let's pause for a moment and ask what Moses has already seen, because he's asking to see more. Show me your glory. What has he already seen? Well, he's already seen God appear to him and speak to him in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. He's seen the Red Sea part and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. He's seen a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night moving the Israelites around the desert. He's seen God come in ecstatic form on Mount Sinai. I would argue that Moses may have already seen more of God than any other person on the face of the planet at that point in time. And he has the audacity to ask for more. Show me your glory. Yahweh, he's praying, flood my life with your manifest presence. 
See, Moses was not settling for the things that he had experienced in his past, but he was longing for, asking for, begging for a new experience of God's presence in abundance in his life. And see, here's what we see through Moses, and I'd invite you to write this down today. When we, when experiencing God's presence is a priority, encounter with God becomes a reality. Let me say that again as you're writing that down. When experiencing God's presence is a priority, encounter with God becomes a reality. I mean, listen to the same way that the prophet Jeremiah said it as he recorded the words of God. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Notice there's a causal relationship. When you seek with all your heart, then you find. Last year, my family and I were traveling. I was going to teach up at Mount Hermon, and we were running late because of a traffic jam on the way out to the airport. And as we were going, rushing through the security line, I helped get my kids' bags on the conveyor belt and sent them all through. And I left my carry-on bag sitting right there in line. I didn't notice it though until we got down to the train and the train was going to take us to our gate and Kelly looked at me and said, where's your bag? And it was one of those, oh no, moments in life, right? I ran up the stairs as fast as I could. I was sort of trying to weave around people, dodging luggage. I ran to the front of the line and I asked, does anybody, has anybody seen a black and yellow bag? I was in hot pursuit. I think that's what it looks like to seek with all of your heart. To have that moment where you go, oh no, I need to find that. I need to get that. And I'm willing to push through whomever is in my way in order to make it happen. When was the last time you cried out for God's presence in the same way? When was the last time you prayed, God, Show me your glory. When was the last time you said, God, I want more of your presence? When was the last time you sought him with all of your heart? See, in the rest of our time today, what I'd like to do is unpack for you what that looks like. Some of the barriers that stand in our way, some of the practices that we can embrace and postures of our heart that will actually help us live into the prayer that Moses boldly prays, that we would be able to echo it with authenticity, with zeal, longing to see God's glory in our life as well. I'm convinced that it's not enough to just tell you, hey, pray and try to encounter the presence of God. I I think we need to go to the scriptures to find out what that really looked like for Moses and, and then what we can learn in our own life as well. And there's three things that I want to sort of put down as as a pathway for us to pursue the presence of God. And here's the first thing that we see in the life of Moses. He rejects apathy. 
and I'd invite you to write that down. He rejects apathy. And if there's maybe a central sin within uh, um, Christianity, in the U.S. at least, this might be it. Uh, A complacency, a settled acceptance of a religious status quo that buzzes with monotony and anoints going through the motions as the pinnacle of religious experience. And in so many ways, that's the air that, they're bre- that we breathe. But there's some things in this text and then some things in our world that, that really stand in the way of us encountering the presence of God. Let me, let me give you three of them. Here's the first one, and we see it in chapter 32 of this text as well. Instead of going after and chasing after the presence of God, the Israelite community as a whole settles for idolatry. And that's the first way that we get, get sucked into apathy. In uh, one of the funniest passages, I think, in, in all the scriptures, um, Moses comes back down the mountain holding the Ten Commandments. He, when he sees what Israel has done in bowing down to this golden calf that they created, he spikes the Ten Commandments like he's Gronk spiking a football. They shatter. He goes up to Aaron and says, what's the deal? You guys couldn't wait for me for 40 days to worship the one true God. And Aaron says to him, "Oh, well, you know what happened, Moses? We had all this gold. We threw it in the fire and then poof, out popped this golden calf. I mean, it's just total lie. And Moses calls him out. So notice the contrast between Moses and the rest of the Israelite people. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, encountering the presence of the living God. And the people are down in the valley, worshiping a golden calf. And it struck me that this is a daily decision that you and I have to make. Uh, Where are we going to place our worship and our affection? And idolatry is so easy to get sucked into where we make good things ultimate things, where we put something else in the place of God. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, and idolatry is at the heart of all sin. And when idols fill our heart, we never seek the presence of God because we're already satisfied. Here's the second way that we see this play out, and I would just put this under the banner of theology. I think there's a lot of us where we don't actually believe that we can encounter and recognize and respond to the presence of God. That that we don't get to deeper levels of enjoying God's presence because we don't think it's possible. I love the way that the brilliant C.S. Lewis put it. Here's what he said. He said, and he's, he's writing a story and he's inviting us to imagine. He says, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which can, we can tap best of all. But God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. He writes, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when children who have been playing burglars in the hall hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion 
man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. So do you have a category in your mind, in your heart for encountering the glory of God? Do you anticipate that when you pray? The third way that we see this happen is simply through distraction, simply through the distraction. See, the irony is that the glory of God, Isaiah says, covers the face of the globe. And yet, and yet, and yet, it's something that we have to make room for in our life. One of the main reasons we don't encounter the abundance of God is because we're already filled with the abundance of other things. See, the Lord cannot fill what has not first been emptied. And in our digital age of attention economy, when people are vying for, paying for, and researching how they can demand our ten- attention, attention is in short supply. I like the way that Matthew Crawford put it. He said, attention is a resource and a person only has so much of it. You only have so much of it. I only have so much of it. And I think Ezra Klein was right when he said that the sum total of our life will be the things that we paid attention to. So you put that together. You only have a certain amount of attention to give and what you give your attention to will shape you. The question becomes, are we attentive to the right things? Are are we attentive to God? See, by way of contrast to apathy as experienced in idolatry and bad theology and distraction, Moses is showing us that we're invited and called to become people who cultivate deep, abiding, and ever-growing desire for the presence of God in our life. Yes, as the people of God, we need to embrace a holy discontent. And that may sound weird if you've been around church. I mean, my guess is you've heard the verse. Uh, Paul wrote it to the church at Philippi. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. But you know what's really, really interesting to me? Is that Paul says that he's content in any situation, in any circumstance. But I don't think he's implying that he's content with his experience of the presence of God. He, He wants to keep pressing on and keep growing in that. I think we've actually flipped it, what it's intended to be. We've said, listen, we are discontent in our circumstances, but we are content with a weak experience of the presence of God in our life. David prays like this, Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In verse 5 of Psalm 63, he goes on to write, my soul will be satisfied with rich food. My stomach will praise you with joyful lips. See, see, look at this. You, You see this thirst that eventually leads to satisfaction. And maybe, maybe we never experience satisfaction if we aren't first willing to thirst. Emmanuel Faith, I'm calling you. I'm I'm begging you, beckoning you to long for more, 
to figure out what it is that stirs your affection and your heart for Jesus? Is it reading the scriptures? Is it praying? Is it going on a walk? What is it that does it for you? Is it time and solitude or silence? What, what does that for you? What makes your heart long for Jesus? And then, and then, and then push into that. Do it. As A.W. Tozer wrote in his great little book, The Pursuit of God, which is free on Kindle, by the way, thought I might add. He says, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Reject apathy. Embrace desire. And friends, let's start to expect encounter. So the first invitation from the scriptures as we seek God's presence in prayer is to be intentional about rejecting apathy. But listen again to Moses' prayer and we're going to see something else that Moses embodies for us. Here's what he prays. Please show me your glory. And here's number two. This is what we see. Reject apathy and then request boldly. Remember, Moses has been offered by God to have an angel accompany him. And Moses said, no. (laughs) I mean, he's almost negotiating with God. I I didn't know that that was an option for God to offer you something and for you to say, no thanks. I'd actually, I'd, I'd like more. I'd like more. And what Moses does is he asks boldly, believing that God gives generously. And This is actually a pretty key spiritual principle. I love the way that Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He writes, or he said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Elsewhere, uh, the book of James, James would write in James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. See, asking is a, is a key spiritual principle. I love the way that Dallas Willard put it when he said, asking is indeed the great law of the spiritual world through which things are accomplished in cooperation with God and yet in harmony with the freedom and worth of every individual. Our freedom and God's sovereignty collide when we ask. You know, one of the things I love about being around my kids is that they model this so well. Uh, It actually drives me crazy sometimes, but um, I love the way that they just ask. I mean, if you take my kids to the grocery store, they will ask for the most ridiculous things you can imagine. Um, They want candy. They want gum. They want hot Cheetos. They want smoothies. They want whatever they lay their eyes on, but they just ask and they are trusting that their good father or good mother are going to provide what they think is good for them. I wonder what it would look like for us to be more of that way with God. Not asking for things. Not yet. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but asking for presence asking to see God's face. I love the way that Daniel Henderson put it when he said, we want to seek God's face before we seek his hand. And that's what we're talking about today, that we would be people hungry to see God and that we'd ask boldly, request boldly to see his face. 
As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. See, see, this is an intentional echo back to Moses in this passage on the mountain. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. See, here's what, here's what Paul just wrote. When we see God, we are transformed. And transformation is one of the goals of the spiritual life. And it happens as we ask and as we encounter. But that transformation isn't easy because it means some things need to be pruned and pruning is often painful and presence leads to pruning and, and sometimes it hurts. But it's the way that we're shaped and formed more into the image of Jesus. So we we request boldly, we reject apathy, and then listen to one last thing as we explore the end of this passage. Exodus chapter 33, 19 through 23. And he said, God speaking to Moses, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So God essentially says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to show you as much of me as you can handle. And when Moses sees the glory of God, what, is, what does he see? He sees goodness, he sees grace, and he sees mercy. So if you ask to see God's glory and you don't see goodness, grace, and mercy, then you haven't seen the same God that Moses sees. In fact, you and I on the other side of the covenant and the people of the new covenant, we have an even better picture of God and it's in John chapter 1 verse 18. John writes this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. He has made God known. When we look at Jesus, we actually see God. But there's in this text, there was embedded this invitation for Moses. Go to the cleft of the rock. Uh, Moses, go on a hike. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, God will say this, Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Essentially, God says, Moses, you're going to have to move. You want to see my glory? You're going to have to move from where you're at and you're going to have to climb to the top of the mountain. And this is the third thing we see. We see Moses reject apathy, request boldly, and then when God says go, he responds obediently. He responds obediently. And he does that by pursuing God intentionally. See, please note this, that before Moses ever prays, show me your glory in verse 18, he prayed, show me your ways in verse 13. Before there's ever a revelation of God's presence, there has to be, there has to be, there has to be an intention to obey God's commands. Let me, let me say that again. Before there is 
ever a revelation of God's presence, there has to be an intention to obey God's commands. Jesus taught his disciples this exact same thing in John chapter 14, verse 21. Listen to what he said. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, keeps them. It is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, so catch the progression, right? That we obey God's commands. Doing that allows us to understand God's love. And then he manifests, Jesus says, himself to us. That word manifest is the Greek word emphaniso, and it literally means to appear to a person or to make visible. And Jesus is saying, you want to see me? Obey me. And that will help you see me. I love this picture of Moses saying, um, God saying to Moses, you've got to climb the mountain in order to see my face. You can't stay where you're at. It's going to take some activity. It's going to take some effort. This is a picture, the, the epitome of positioning and posturing ourselves to receive what God wants to pour out. And that's exactly what spiritual disciplines are. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, uh, they're simply ways that we position and posture ourselves to receive what Jesus is already pouring out. And there's been a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding about spiritual disciplines. I mean, some people think that spiritual disciplines are some, a way to earn something from God. They're not. Uh, that some people think that they're merit-based religion. It's not. Some people think it's just simply trying harder. That's not what they are. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, like reading scripture or spending time in silence or solitude, they are simply ways to position ourselves to receive from Jesus what he is already pouring out. And just a quick note, sometimes the times where we want to do that least, where we're in the most pain in life, when our hearts are broken, when we're frustrated, when we're doubting, when we're disappointed, those are the times where we actually need to push into the presence more ardently, harder than we ever have before. See, in closing, I want to give you sort of a vision for where we're going in this series, not just in the messages, but in the weekly, our weekly rhythm together as a community. See, because I believe that we can't just learn about prayer in our heads, but we're called to actually practice it. So there's three things that I want to invite you to over the next four weeks. I want to invite you to 30 days of prayer. First thing I want to invite you to do is sign up for our daily fill that's going to start again this week. You'll get it on Monday. There's going to be a devotion there and then a prompt that will help you pray. It'll be an invitation to prayer. And I'm asking everybody in our church community to commit to praying for just 15 minutes every single day. And it'll be focused on the things that we talk about during our message. This week, it'll be focused on seeking God's face. So first thing, I want you to commit to praying daily. Second thing, we're going to have a weekly prayer meeting Wednesdays at 6.30 in the courtyard on our church campus. If you're able to come, I would love to see you there. We're going to practice corporate prayer, and we're just going to push into the heart of God together and seek his face this week together. 6.30 in the courtyard. We'd love to see you there. And finally, I'd like to invite you to try something maybe a little bit different for you. I'd love to invite you um, on Wednesdays or whatever day works for you. If Wednesday works, that'd be ideal to fast on Wednesday. And maybe you fast from food or from technology 
or from something. It's, it's creating space, like we just talked about. Creating space that we expect and anticipate and ask God to fill. So, daily prayer, weekly prayer gathering together, and then weekly fasting that we'll embrace as a community together. Friends, I'm so excited for us to seek God's face, to know his heart, and to be transformed together more into his image. I love the way that Margaret Feinberg put it, and I'll close with this. When we passionately pursue God above all else, the tone and tenacity with which we live our lives changes. Holiness beckons. Divine expectation flourishes. Hope returns. Love abounds. And in response, we awaken, toss back the covers, climb out of bed, and drink deep in the fullness of life God intended for us. May we live that life as individuals, and may we embody it as a community of faith. See, friends, when we pursue the presence of God, we encounter it as a reality. I pray that you will this week. I pray that you will.